Welcome back. Welcome to all of you. It's great to be joining you all for this Tales of the Talmud. I say welcome back because this is sort of a continuation of this series that we've been exploring last year. You don't need to have read all of the stuff from last year, all the stories from before, but this is an engagement with Talmud, with all of these stories, the wanderings, the meanderings, the journeys of the ancient rabbis. So, I want to begin, the way I often do, with what is Talmud? What is this stuff that we're learning here? Well, so let's go all the way back. The Talmud consists of, it's essentially the first writings of Judaism, the first post-biblical writings of the Jewish people, the first serious collections of them. There are bits and pieces here and there, Midrashim, but the Talmud is the really serious collection that comes together. The Talmud is the longest written work in the ancient world. It's the longest written work by about four times, actually. It's 63 volumes. Um, The thing looks like an Encyclopedia Britannica on the shelf. The reason it's so long is that it contains all the dissenting opinions. It contains all of the disagreements. It contains everything with all of the rabbis arguing back and forth. This opinion, that opinion, this unpopular piece. It retains all of that. So this is what part of what makes it so very, very uh, excruciatingly long. Now, the Talmud is also covers two essential genres of written work. The first is halakha. First is Jewish law. The project of the Talmud is trying to figure out how do you take everything that we get from the Bible, from the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, from the Torah, from all of those works, and actually translate it into something that's livable. How do you make sense of this and incorporate it and fold it into your life? So the Talmud is where we get really a lot of the roots of Jewish law and Jewish practice as we know it today. Um, One famous example I can think of is that the Bible tells us to remember the Passover story and tell it to our children. Well, what does that mean, to remember it and tell it? How do you actually do that? What we get from the rabbis, in turn, is they say, oh, you do it with four cups of wine, and you tell these pieces of the story. So right from the very beginnings of the Talmud, we get the Passover Seder. So we have this commandment in the Torah to tell this story, and the rabbis, through this process of talking and arguing and discussing all of these pieces, they wind up communicating to us what we have today as the Passover Seder. I want to also say that there are two Talmuds. Two Talmuds, really? Yes, there are two Talmuds. There is the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, and the Talmud Yerushalmi the uh, Jerusalem or Palestinian Talmud, as it's called sometimes. They have very, very similar material, but they reflect where Jews were during the time that they were written. There was a huge uh, exilic community over in what is today Iraq, parts of Iran, and they were the ones writing this Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian. And then there's this huge community in the Holy Land, in Israel, hence the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem. Um, They are in one another's stories. They go back and forth. A lot of them tell similar stories, but they do differ (coughs) here and there. One of the big differences is that the Babylonian Talmud ultimately has a greater thumbprint of subsequent redactors and subsequent editors and people who are part of its process. Um, So these are folks in the centuries later on who sort of went back and might be editing it for clarity or editing it to fit into their perspective. So on one hand, it's not as historically pure, you could say, as the Yerushalmi, but on the other hand, it's a lot more readable and understandable. So if you're trying to go back and get the real history and really get at the essence of what it was, you might look to the Yerushalmi here and there, but the one that's most commonly studied and read and in circulation is the Bavli. 
Now, when we're talking about timing, what are we talking about exactly? And if our uh, rabbinic intern, Daniel Scher, has greater information or more up-to-date information or historicity, I invite him to chime in. Um, but let me tell you uh, the best timing that we got from my rabbinic training, which is that the Talmud is two parts. It's the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Mishnah was the very beginnings of it, the first layer of it. It's the very beginnings of this rabbinic conversation, and it's the beginnings of rabbis serving as leaders of the Jewish community. They had very much stepped in following the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the sacrificial rites and sacrifices of relationship to God. Um, they are innovating what happens in the following of, in the uh, the aftermath of these great cataclysms. So they really much they are very much replaced the priests, the priesthood, the Kohanim. If anyone has heard the name Kohen anywhere, um, those were the leaders of Judaism before that. And with the destructions of the temples, the rabbis uh, gradually filled in that gap. So the first rabbinic writings were the Mishnah. Essentially, there are some other rabbinic writings here and there, but the first part of the Talmud is the Mishnah. It was redacted by the year 220. This was when Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the head of the great rabbinic assembly, um, sealed the thing and said, "This is our work. This is our Mishnah." The Gemara is what came afterward. The two of them together, Mishnah and Gemara, make up the Talmud. The Gemara is the next generations of rabbis continuing the conversation. They are unfolding it even further, saying, what did these guys say earlier? Uh, what did they mean by that? How do we make sense of that? How do we unpack these other pieces? How do we reconcile that stuff? It's that same project of taking that which is holy and our sacred perspectives and trying to make it into something that's livable, that lives and breathes and actually functions in our day-to-day -day lives. So they continue with the Gemara. The tricky thing about the Gemara, and this is where I'm wondering if there's more up-to-date information, but we'll see what I have. Um, the Gemara, it's not entirely clear when it was redacted, when it was finished, what that final layer, editorial layer, which we call the Stam, uh, that editorial layer, it's this sort of anonymous editorial voice that sort of says who it is we follow or what it is we do. We don't know exactly when that was grafted on. Um, probably 500, 600, 700 CE, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, does that yeah, sound about right? Seven, seven seems to be a more agreed seven, upon eight, at this point. Seven. A little later, all right. And that's also the big difference with the Yerushalmi. Is that and the Bavli. Yes. That like, Thank why, you. Why people like Bavli is it gives you an answer. Yes. When you read the Yerushalmi, you might have to decide what you like better at the end. Right. This way, you don't have to make any decisions for yourself. The Bavli tells exactly you. Exactly what to do. Thank you. Now, I will say, just as an editorial note, that if you buy a volume of Talmud today, it will have a little line, it'll have a little note in the margin saying what the actual halakha is, what the actual Jewish law is. Because it's important to point out that Jewish law has actually changed from what's in the Talmud. The example of this I always give is... Um, this idea that if you drop a drop of meat, a uh, drop of milk into a meat stew, as long as it's less than one sixtieth of the total composition of the stew, still kosher. I don't think all that many orthodox halachic authorities would necessarily go by that ruling. Kashrut has evolved over the centuries to actually be something that's more stringent. They didn't have separate kitchens in the time of the Talmud. Um, so this is one example where uh, subsequent authorities have taken the, vo the laws of the Talmud and actually changed them or made them more uh, strict. There are places where it's become less strict, too, but that's one of the uh, prime examples I think about is that the kinds of kashrut that we've seen get much more extreme uh, and intensive. Uh, I would be happy to have that as a separate conversation, but that's just one piece of it. So we have all of the legal material, all of that stuff, and then we have 
Agadita. That's the other big genre of literature that's in the Talmud. Halakhas, the law, Agadita are the stories. It's the legends, it's the wanderings, the meanderings, all of the rabbinic stuff, the discussion. Now, part of what's so crazy and somewhat confounding about the Talmud um, is that, has anyone ever heard it referred to as the Oral Torah? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so that's something. So the reason it's called that was because it started as a series of conversations. These were living, breathing discussions and arguments and back and forth. And what's maddening about it is that sometimes it reads like that. Like it's a bunch of guys sitting around having this discussion about one thing and then it veers in a wildly different direction because somebody had a different idea about it. Um, my favorite example of this is Rabbi Bar Bar Kama, who, these are the strangest stories in the Talmud where he goes on these mystical sea voyages and talks to demons and giants and all kinds of weird stuff. And it comes out in a section about laws for building boats. <laughs> They're talking about, these are the laws for building a boat of this size with these dimensions, and this is how it goes. Oh, and here's a story about a guy who went on a boat one time, and they're off. Um, so this is sort of the nature of it. It is a conversation in that way. Um, and and this is, the organization of that mm-hmm. is what explains your Mishnah and then your Talmud with your Agadah, which is if this first book of Mishnah is in the Talmud, it's not chapter one through three. It's two lines from the Mishnah, four chapters of conversation and stories to explain those two lines. Next two lines from the Mishnah, a bunch of chapters. So instead of being a, a, a straight read, it's here's a line, we don't understand this line, let's talk about this line, side story about a guy and a sea monster, okay, back to why we talked about that line. And it really is a conversation in that sense and just see where it goes. It is a so real back and forth in that the sense. the whole thing to get each book. So this is before they had Facebook. So that's before they had Facebook. So a piece of why we're not going too far into that conversation is that we're not actually opening the thing up in front of us. If you open the thing in front of you and you see these t- boxes of text with boxes of text around them, with boxes of text around that, you get a sense of that sort of discourse. But because we're working in handouts today, um, we're going to gloss over some of that specific detail. Um, but it's true. These things very much are working in conversation with one another. Um, and another thing I want to point out as part of that conversation, the rabbis play very fast and loose with time, with temporality. There's a piece, this line in Torah, Ein mukdam Torah. There's no such thing as early or late in Torah. They're not concerned with uh, history in the sense that we have it. They're not worried about linear timelines. We have uh, records in the Talmud of conversations between rabbis and we know that they could not have had this conversation because they didn't live within centuries of each other. And yet the Talmud's not worried about that. The Talmud is much more worried about the substance, the discussion, what comes out of the conversation. Um, and they're not so worried about beginning and end in this sense. History, as we have it in the Western sense, is a much later project. They're really there for the discourse. Um, and so that's where we are. That's where I sit with all of you today, inviting you to the discourse. You all get a seat at the table with all of them now. Welcome to the conversation. Any questions before we get into... Question about yeah. rabbis. Yeah. How did you become a rabbi back then? That's a great question, actually, because there weren't rabbinical seminaries. Um, it seems that in many ways it was dynastic. 
in that a student might become apprentice to another rabbi and then they might be declared a rabbi, or there even might be schools, you might not call them rabbinical seminaries in the same way, but for instance, Hillel and Shammai, two famous of the early, um, the earliest of some of these rabbis, they both had established schools where, and they disagreed with each other vehemently, but it seems that each one of them had a whole bunch of students, and oftentimes they will identify themselves as being a student of so-and-so rabbi. Um, so that lineage does work in that sense, and there is this sort of dynastic piece where I am, where Rabbi says they are so and so, which they heard from Rabbi so and so who quoted Rabbi so and so. So there's this sense of chain of transmission in that way, even if it wasn't formalized in an academic course of study in the same way. So it's much more than just the learned men sitting around and talking. Um, there's some of that too. Uh, it's important to keep in mind that. We may not like this, it may not speak to some of our more democratic or populist ideals, but the reality is that the rabbinic project was very elitist. These, um, and there are questions about the extent to which they were in common with actual day-to-day -day people. Um, they did see themselves as sort of a cut above or a cut beyond oftentimes. And you even see their arrogance actually bleeding through. Now sometimes they get reprimanded for that too, but there is a sense that they represented a certain kind of uh, intellectual, spiritual, religious, political elite of a kind. Um, and so some of that ties into it too. Um, periodically, the politics of it and who is part of which political dynasty or related to who and whose daughter and has which kind of power. Sometimes that plays into, comes into play too. Um, because it's important to keep in mind that these weren't just religious leaders in the same way that today I am a religious leader but I don't have political office, I don't have political power in our community. Um, there's some degree to which some of them may have had both for their communities. Um, they really were communal leaders in a broader, more holistic sense. So there are a number of different ways in which one could become a rabbi in that sense. Does that yeah. sort of get at what you're thinking? Sure. Other questions? Yeah, Bert. Hillel and some, uh, I, in, in like Perkei Avot, mm -hmm. he's not called a rabbi. He is called Hillel the Elder, Hillel, Hillel the, the Sage. Elder, right. Yep. Is, is, was he in fact a rabbi? I know he's very, he's like so famous. Daniel, you, wanna jump, you wanted to jump that in? That was to show more respect. Ah, oh, that the, he didn't right. even need to be called the rabbi. rabbis referred to him as a sage, oh. which is a, an elevated level of respect. If he's such a great rabbi, the rabbis don't want to just give him the title they have. He's the Lord of the Admiralty of the rabbis. <laughs> um, he, yeah, he, he merits pretty high up. Um, <laughs> the whole etymology and history of the word rabbi is its own interesting thing, and um, interesting is a side of respect and places and contexts in which it's used in place of sir, for instance, reb so-and-so gets used as sir in certain medieval communities. Um, but yeah, so some of them don't necessarily get called rabbi. Another, one, uh, another example of one who doesn't. Um, does anyone remember Choni HaMa'agel? the circle maker, the one who drew circles and forced God's hand at the rain and all of these things. He's one who doesn't get called rabbi very often, but he's definitely part of their whole project. He's part of their whole team. He's part of their whole frame of reference. He's one of these guys who's part of this um, innovative project of what is Judaism going to be post the destructions, post the temple, post the priesthood, post sacrifice, um, part of innovating really what Judaism is going to be. There are those who would make the argument that actually what predates the rabbis, they wouldn't even necessarily call it Judaism. There are those who might call it late Israelite um, civilization or worship or consciousness or whatever. Um, there are some who would say that Judaism as we have it today really is a function of the rabbinic project and the Talmud in that sense. So it really is the roots of who we are in some pretty fundamental ways. 
Other questions? Can, yeah. Can you talk about the power of stories? Because we say in English, oh, that's just a story. Mm -hmm. And, and the stories, I, I don't know, they don't seem to have the power that they used to have. I mean, are these, say, are these quote, just stories? Or Thank you. is there a whole other piece to this? Some of them maybe, some of them maybe not. Um, this, these texts, these agadot, these legends that the rabbis teach, uh, they don't teach them idly. They don't teach them to hear themselves talk. There's generally a very important point that they want to make about the world that they're in, about their traveling companions, about who is their community, who are their friends, who are their enemies. There's generally some very important point that they want to make with it. I always think about the example of this commandment that on Purim, you're supposed to drink ad de lo yada until you don't know the difference between um, blessed Mordechai and cursed Haman. The rabbis get that that's actually maybe kind of a dangerous thing. And so they give that commandment to drink. Um, it's interesting, the actual Hebrew to it is to become sweetened. And so some people think drugs might have been involved too. But they say that uh, you should get wasted to the point that you don't know the difference between those two characters. Well, immediately after that, they tell the story of two rabbis that do this. And in the midst of their party, the one kills the other one by accident. So... In that way, the story exists very much to temper that legal piece. The story exists to tell them, okay, this is, uh, this is what we say you're supposed to do with this holiday, and here's how real life really works. Here's how these things actually go. You can be, that can be an incredibly dangerous situation to put yourself in. Um, so in that way, they use this story, I would say, to impart wisdom. So rather than just stories, I might even suggest that what we're looking at is wisdom literature, um, which I would say carries a greater sort of weight than story, as it were, like bedtime story. And as we've seen in these, these are not necessarily easy or upbeat or inspiring stories. Some of them get dark. Some of them deal with some of the uglinesses and the darknesses of their reality, some of these destructions. We saw um, the martyrdom of Rabbi Akiva um, in one of our previous sessions as this wonderful uplisted, uplifted figure who taught such wonderful Torah, and he was slaughtered in a very uh, vicious and explicit way by the Romans, and they are trying to weigh that reality in this. So it's not necessarily just sort of fables that have a happy ending. It's not stuff that you would necessarily teach in Hebrew school either. Um, they are wrestling with the ups and downs of their reality, and it is complicated. Other questions? Yeah, Robert. Well, you commented uh, that um, a lot of these conversations could not, have, uh, could not have been a lived history in the sense of really occurring. Mm -hmm. But to what degree are these stories... Um, constructed later sort of mythically or were they to some degree really lived re real discussions that might not have been contemporaneous so you see the imprint of later to what extent are these edited over time these stories or to what extent is this sort of verbatim telling of it first of all some of what happens is fantastical and second we also see other people commenting later on about the stories. There's a great example in that story about the oven of Achnai, that snake oven where all these things happen. And one of the things that happen is they say that uh, Rabbi Eliezer says, if the halacha agrees with me, let this carob tree prove it. And this carob tree uproots itself and walks down the road. 
Some say 100 cubits, some say 400 cubits. There you have an example of both all in one story. You have something fantastical happening that's hard to imagine it really happened, and you can tell it sounds like these guys are all sitting around a desk or a campfire or something. I heard it was 100. No, I heard it was 400, man. Um, you get that sense that they're sort of telling and retelling it, and you get the sense that it's sort of playing out over generations in that sense. So... Um, so my answer is yes. <laughs> that these are definitely that's definitely part of the story. Are there? Yeah. Did you want to jump in? Pays a respect, right? If if the story, when someone who I truly and profoundly respect says, "I have a story for you," the last thing I'm thinking is Goldilocks and the Three Bears, <laughs> right? I'm thinking whatever they tell me right now is going to have significant truth to it, mm -hmm. not fact, truth. Yeah. So it's the same way with the Talmud. These rabbis have so much respect for each other that whether or not it is chronologically possible, or if it's obvious it's a story, or if it might be a real, like a real historical moment, everything they write down, they have a respect for the other person writing it, and therefore they're all supposed to convey truths. Perfect. And that's why, just like they're not concerned with time, they're not concerned with factuality in the same way. Right. They're concerned with the truths they convey. With the and truths that's and the memories. Hard way to. Uh, Hard thing for people today, but like for them, it was very simple. Yeah. Truth and facts were different. Well, also today we have so many more stories. Yes. How many stories are we exposed to every day? How many television channels have so many stories mm -hmm. every day? The internet, books, magazines. Way back then, mm -hmm. I don't know that there there were as many. that many stories, and and the ones that there were probably had more power. I also think about TV shows. If there's a TV show made by some people who I knew made a TV show that I really liked, mm. I'm much more likely to go watch that next TV show. It's a little bit like that with them, that you know, they respect one another and the ones who came before them. And so they are very interested in telling and conveying and, and transmitting these stories as really as their, their wisdom and the substance and the fabric of their lives and their journeys. Other questions? Let me take a couple more, and then I want to get into our story here today. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Obviously, all these stories in these different directions and, and different opinions. For it to be unbiased, was there a scribe? Because if one person was writing down the story, would there not be? Would, it, would he not pen it to, you know, to be his, you know, go his direction, or was somebody actually? So this gets back to it being the oral Torah. It didn't start out even as a written piece. It started out as a series of conversations. It started out as this whole meandering thing. And only later on did somebody did a handful of people, did numerous people in, Bav, in Bavel, in Yerushalayim, these people in these places think, oh, maybe we should be uh, taking some of this down. And so that's why by the time they're writing it down, there are even different tellings of it. So it wasn't even written down initially. Um, Wasn't there a debate as to whether it should be written down at all? There is a piece about a debate over whether this should be recorded in this way. So that question of writing is an interesting one. Um, but it didn't happen. Yes. Precisely. The game of telephone. And we do get different tellings of different stories in the Yerushalmi and the Bavli. We get different tellings of the same story within the same story, as I mentioned. Some said 100, some said 400. So I think it does reflect the orality of it. Go ahead. Question. Mm -hmm. That just when you said it's different, it's not that different. We're, we're still thinking about fact versus truth all the time. So I, I don't think that like CNN could have been there to cover the conversation. Right. They're not those kinds of conversations. I mean, the, the sort of intellectual history of 
you know, post-enlightenment historicity of things. This is not a conversation they're really part of. They're interested in the transmission of ideas and wisdom and tradition and their truths as they know it. But the idea of sort of cold, hard fact as we have it today, um, I think they, that's not something that they're necessarily dealing in. Um, it's an interesting comment about are we dealing in truth versus fact. Um, and our political discourse brings up all kinds of questions about that, and I intentionally don't want to go there right now, but it's a, a wonderful uh, thing to uplift in our conversation, that this, we may not be so far from that reality in some ways. I think you're absolutely right. A hundred percent. I'm going to pass these around. If you'll take one and pass them on. We're passing out a story today. I would love for us to go through this the way... We usually go through this, which is the way that you would do this traditionally. If you were part of some kind of traditional study, you would read a story in what they called Chavruta. It is an Aramaic construct that comes from the word Chaver, for friend. Um, the traditional way of studying these things and learning them is to read in a pair, or read three people if you want. So as these come around, I want to encourage you all to find pairs, find groups of three, find somebody you know, somebody you don't know, however it is you want to do this. Um, find a Chavruta to read this aloud. The other thing is, read it aloud. We are very much embodying this rabbinic uh, idea of the Beit Midrash. It should be loud, it should be noisy, it should be, uh, <laughs> should be lively in that sense. And there is this idea that, again, we're taking part in a conversation, we're taking part in that oral Torah, so read it as a conversation. Read it aloud with somebody. Um, and I'm going to go and circulate and float around while you all are doing that. Um, I invite our rabbinic intern to either join a chavruta or to circulate as well. It's his choice. And with this, we're going to break for chavruta. Ready, set, go. Okay. All right, all of our chavrutot, all of our groups, welcome back. How was that story? Very clear. Very clear. Oh, I'm so glad. Transparent. Transparent. So is this one harder or easier than some of the other ones we've seen? What do y'all think? It's a little easier. A little easier. I think it's a little easier. Yeah. Susan. Are the, are, the ref, are, the, are the pronoun references as unclear in Hebrew as they are in English? They're more unclear in the Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> they are less clear. I will put it like that. Okay. Because um, we were like going, well, who is him? Yes. It's, the actual text itself is horrendous with he said, and then he said, and he said. Um, I clean it up sometimes a little bit, and this is a little bit cleaned up from the original, but I, I can, let me put it like this. If you have a reading in which you wanted to change who was who, I would be happy to look back at the Hebrew and see if it would support it. Um, you know, we try and do this as straightforwardly as possible, but, you know, the thing about this is the ambiguities and the gaps in it and the parts that aren't totally clear, this is an invitation to you all to read, to explore, to play in these ideas. It's an invitation to drosh, to unpack what these things could be. So um, while it does provide additional challenge, I think it also it gives opening for conversation. Go ahead. So, so along with those lines, I was wondering, are they, do we know, are the ambiguities purposeful? Are the ambiguities purposeful? That's a fantastic question. To what extent are these texts ambiguous or esoteric or challenging? <coughs> I think scribe left out every other sentence. <laughs> I yeah. We'll try and take one piece at another. Hang on. Go ahead. Well, this kind of relates to that. Yeah. So, um, take a, 
step back. Who is the Talmud written for? <laughs> Who is the Talmud written for? Let me take one and then the other. Is it intentionally ambiguous? There are some works that, yes, scholars feel pretty firmly are intentionally um, impenetrable. A great example for this, and I love the irony of the name, is Moray Nevuchim, the guide for the perplexed, written by Maimonides. And it is written to be challenging. Um, There's a lot of scholarship that points at actually the structure of each chapter. The beginning and end of it are almost impenetrable, and then he says what he wants to in the middle. Very clearly, he's trying to break this very carefully to keep out of, you know, upsetting any kind of authority who might not see God the way he does. And he's writing this, he wrote it really for one student, this guide that we have passed down to us from the generations and generations, all kinds of philosophers and theologians trying to study it. Maimonides wrote that for one guy. Um, That's a pretty baffling text. It's a pretty difficult text. Parts of Zohar and Kabbalah, the mysticism, parts of that are written in ways that... uh, are, I would suggest, not intended to be confusing, but intended to give proper kavod and proper cover to what they understand to be the secret meanings therein. That there are secrets concealed within text and words, and it might not necessarily even be proper to blow them wide open to the whole world because of the nature of these secrets and secret meanings and such. So a lot of um, Zoharic material is written in a way to work around what they see as the secret and concealed meanings of these things. This is probably somewhere in between. Clearly, this is a conversation taking place within, with, and in and around elites of the society. It's not meant to be everybody studying it at the table. Um, in spite of that image of the Orthodox yeshiva where everybody's learning Talmud, that probably wasn't what the rabbinic ideal was in its own time. It was sort of seen as this elite thing. But it also wasn't supposed to be a secret either in the same way that some of Zohar is. So I would say it's probably somewhere in between. Let me get back to Grant's question. Who is the Talmud written for? Well, but if it's written for elites who, who know what these things mean, that then maybe it wouldn't be so, so, so obtuse to them. Right. So the people following it probably were pretty good with it. Um, did you want to add something to this, Daniel? Well, if we look at it as written versus closed, so if it starts in the 2nd century and ends by the 7th, why is it, like, canonized? Is it canonized so that they can disperse it wi- widely, or is it canonized so that they stop adding to it? Right? Because that's the other side of it is, oh, the next generation might go a little too far with this. We're going to stop it. Yes. We're going to cap it. And now this is what they have to study from. And if that's the side of it, then whether it's purposely ambiguous or is that what gives it the longevity to survive, is that by having the ambiguous, I don't know exactly which way to use that word. Ambiguity. Ambiguity. To have that allows us to continuously shape it as time changes. But I'm not sure if it was intentionally written that way or capped and stopped and allows us to still do that. So it's a, it's a difference of which direction we want to look at the way in which the Talmud was built. If it was constructed for that reason or selectively chosen and then capped off, the two make a difference in the way we would see it. And I want to take that one step further and say that different individual communal leaders and different rabbis and different people may have answered that question differently at different times. Um, so 
I'm not sure that there was one unified body that was able to speak with that kind of purpose to say, this is who it was written for, or this is why it was canonized at this time, this is why it was redacted right at this moment, um, and this is the purpose of the redaction. There are probably different answers to that from different places, and some of that's lost to us today. But it's an excellent question to consider who is this for as we read along. Go ahead, Abe. There's, there's also a small part, which is that... Um Biblical Hebrew and Rabbinic Hebrew were both incredibly primitive languages grammatically. Mm. There, there were fewer, there, were not, there was not a very large vocabulary, and there was a very, very basic, poorly defined grammar structure. Mm-hmm. That is one of the reasons why Maimonides wrote primarily in Arabic, was it was a more uh, evolved language. Judeo-Arabic, that's right. You know, and, and it was, uh, you know, it, modern Hebrew is like an artificial construct from biblical and, and rabbinical Hebrew that, that had grammar and vocabulary added to it to right. how we speak it today. So there's a lot of ambiguities that can arise from just the fact that the grammar structure was not there. So what I would say is that biblical Hebrew and Mishnaic Hebrew are bad. Aramaic is worse. Aramaic is far worse. Aramaic is a train wreck grammatically and in terms of a lot of the structure of it. Um, the only other piece I want to put into the mix is that... Uh, systematic grammatical approach to Hebrew isn't purely modern. The first guy to do it and to engage in it deeply was Ibn Ezra in the 1400s, and he did so out of, you're exactly right, Arabic. This is a guy who was versed in Arabic and saw the way in which it was formalized and structured, and he just took that and retrojected that onto Hebrew. So the kinds of systematization we have of Hebrew today we inherit from Ibn Ezra, and then later on from Ben Yehuda, who was the, basically the architect of Hebrew as a modern language. But this stuff, yeah, that ambiguity is a function of the orality of it, and yeah, you could say that the grammar structure is not what it, uh, what it is today. Go ahead, Mike. I would like to know when I can ask what the second paragraph has to do with the rest of the piece of paper. Momentarily, we're going to start going through this in a close reading together. I heard a third. You could delete that sentence, and all the rest of this fits with all this intentional ambiguity, and it tells a story. And that one, I'm staring at and wondering if those people were hiding in the cave. Hold on a second, Mike. We'll get there. Bert, you have one last, and then I want to get into the story. I wanted to add to what Daniel said. Yeah. If this were really straightforward, Mm -hmm. then it would be communication in only one direction. It would be the Talmud talking to us, and us kind of like absorbing it receiving receiving it directly but the ambiguity really makes it a conversation between us and our brains and the text and I think the same thing is true with Torah as well and I think someone said I would totally agree if they were straightforward we wouldn't be here still talking about them today it would be like an instruction manual but it's not. Beautifully spoken. It's, it's meant to be chewed on. Yes. And, 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 and related to. And like you say, it's a conversation. It's an enterprise of dealing with it and embracing it, not just sitting and mutely listening. Beautifully spoken, Bert. Um, y'all are not here to be passive receptacles of some kind of truth I am offering from on high. You all have a seat at the table. You all are part of this rabbinic discussion. Um, this is the point of doing this 100%, is that you all are partners in this dialogue that's been going on for 2,000 years now. Um, beautifully spoken. I appreciate your bringing that to us. So, with that as our kavanah, with that as our intentionality, let's do it. Who wants to read? Rabbi... Uh... Yehoshua and Levi met Elijah 
while he was standing at the entrance of the cave of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. All right, let's stop there. <laughs> Anybody remember that story? <laughs> Refresh us on that story. What happens in that story? I don't remember the exact details, but it, it was it took place sort of north of Spot in yep. some caves in this beautiful canyon that I hiked through. Mount Meron. It was gorgeous, absolutely beautiful. Uh, except it was raining the whole time. Um, and snowing when we were further up in Golan. That was not what I expected in Israel. Uh, but there was a rabbi, and I believe his son was with him. Shimon Bar Yochai, yep. And they, I don't remember why they went to the cave. They went to the cave for some extended period of time. They went in in these all-white, pure white robes of the finest wool that was beaten in the mills in the area. They, and they were buried. And they were buried. <laughs> they buried themselves up to their heads. Yeah, uh, in these pure white robes. And then after some period of time, they unburied themselves <laughs> and came out because they were hoping that something would have changed and were very disappointed that the world outside hadn't changed uh, and caused some great mystical destruction and then went back into the cave, buried themselves again <laughs> for a period of time, came back out, at which point ben Yo or Bar Yochai uh, was still causing destruction, but his son was healing the damage caused All right, by so the lasers shooting out of their eyes. Good. Very good. Let me fill in some of the blanks there. I, I, this is, this is, I don't remember the details. Yeah, let, excellent. Let me just fill in a little bit of that. Shimon Bar Yochai was one of the prominent rabbis during the Roman occupation. Um, word had gotten back that he was speaking poorly of the Roman administration, and so they put a bounty out on him. And so to avoid this bounty, he and his son hid in this cave for years and years and years, and all they did was study Torah. Um, they, to avoid wearing out their fine robes, they actually disrobed and buried themselves nude up to their heads and just studied Torah as these two hot talking heads. And there was this mystical carob tree that gave them food and water and so forth. They came out of the cave and there was a guy collecting wood for Shabbat. And they were so incensed that somebody was not studying Torah but was actually doing some mundane piece of labor that everything that Shimon Bar Yochai cast his eyes upon burst into flames. And God said, really? I brought you out of the cave for that? And tells him to go back in the cave. And so he has this period of sort of a purgatory before he is um, allowed to come back out. Shimon Bar Yochai, while he is sort of the mystic par excellence, the rabbis hold that the Zohar, the Kabbalah, was written as a dialogue between Shimon Bar Yochai and Elijah the prophet. We know that that's probably not historically the case. But uh, he's both the mystic par excellence and he's also this kind of uh, zealot, this kind of fanatic. He, is, he very much represents the pious Haredi impulse to sequester yourself off from the modern world and the concerns of it, to only do Torah. Um, and his story also gives us some about the dangers of that. So... The cave of Shimon Bar Yochai, all of this crazy stuff is going on. And Elijah, by the way, when we come back, Elijah is the one who says in the first place, oh, hey, I heard that the decree, the Roman decree isn't so bad. Maybe the two of them can come out now, sort of saying that at the door of the cave, um, suggesting to Shimon Bar Yochai and his son that they can come out. But this is hundreds of years earlier. Okay, who is Elijah? That's a great question, too. Elijah, we first get him in the Bible. Elijah, my rabbi, my Rav Steve Sager teaches, is in some ways the consummate uh, reconstructionist. If Judaism is this evolving religious civilization that changes in every era, as Mordechai Kaplan teaches us, Elijah is there for the ride in every single era. In the Bible, Elijah is this prophet and a slayer of false prophets. He kills 400 of them in a valley by his own hand. He is a 
severe guy, a zealot. Elijah also doesn't... Tough dude. Elijah also doesn't die, curiously enough. Elijah ascends to heaven in a fiery chariot. Well, what happens then with Elijah? Well, for the rabbis, Elijah is something of a traveling companion. He comes and he hangs out. The stranger on the street sometimes turns out to be Elijah. You never know what form Elijah is going to take and who is going to be Elijah for you in your journey. But he's something of a companion and an intermediary between the rabbis and their conversations and their journeys and God. Sometimes when the rabbis don't know what's going on, they'll ask Elijah, what does God think of this? And Elijah will tell them, God was laughing. Um, this comes up in the, uh, the oven of Achnai, exactly. Elijah becomes this intermediary, but he's something of a, a mystical companion to the rabbis in their journeys. And, weirdly enough, Elijah's still around. Mm-hmm. Every seder. Yeah. Every single seder. Well, you open the door, and somebody's grandfather slugs back the Manischewitz. Hey, look, Elijah's cup is empty now. That was what happened in my Passover Seder at least every year. Um, We open the door for Elijah and let Elijah into our lives too. This is not somebody who's disappeared into the sands of time of Jewish reality. Elijah's present with us. Um, I have heard in Israeli seders, I worked with an Israeli shaliach at Delaware Hillel, and he used to do this at our Hillel seders. in Israel, apparently, there's a tradition of Elijah is some male fem- family member in a fake beard who brings presents and comes in <laughs> and gives everybody presents at Passover. So this Israeli shaliach, yes, and he, yeah, he was a large guy. He came in with his fake beard and his bag of presents to give everybody, and these Hillel students were just totally mystified. What on earth is the shaliach doing? What on earth is this guy doing? But... Yeah, Elijah lives. Elijah continues to wander in and out of our journeys. I would say even more frequently than Passover, every Saturday night when we end Shabbat, we sing this song during Havdalah. Eliyahu Hav. Yep. Ended every bris. Ended every bris as well. That's right. The chair of Elijah. Thank you. That's right. He was concerned with whether or not the Jews were keeping the commandments. So God says to Elijah, fine. And you get to go to every single bring me law for the rest of forever and make sure they do it. <laughs> Yashikoch, absolutely. Elijah remains with us with some regularity. Um, so that's just a few words on Elijah. Um, and Shimon Bar Yochai. Let's keep going. Go ahead, Susan. You can finish out this paragraph. We're coming to Mike's question. So, um, Elijah, do I have a place in the world to come? And Elijah replies, if the master desires it. Okay, any other questions from just that much before we get into Mike's big question? Yeah, go ahead, Abe, and then Mike, and then Jill. Okay, um, what does he mean exactly by the world to come? This was Grant's question, too. Or is he talking an afterlife? Because as I understood it, there wasn't really like a corporeal afterlife in traditional Judaism at that time, the way that sort of the Christian afterlife is presented. Correct. But there was a very definite post-messianic existence. Correct. There is a heaven of sorts, but it's definitely not the Christian one. The rabbis talk a lot about this sort of afterlife as olam haba, the world to come. We hear this a lot. It doesn't get sketched out all that fully until Sadia Gaon in the near 900-something. Daniel, when Sadia Gaon, do you know off the top of your head? Yeah, 900-something? Yeah, okay. So afterlife doesn't totally get sketched out in a big way. Yeah, until Sadia Gaon. So what they're dealing in is this idea that there is some kind of the spirit, the neshama, there is life beyond the corporeality of this body, but they haven't totally 
fleshed out exactly what it is yet, no pun intended. Um, there is something of, there's a hell, but it's not like the Christian construct, because we have, they talk about the pit, Sheol, oblivion. They even have Gehinom by this time too, which is a sort of purgatory that souls wind up in in order to render them fit for uh, Olam Haba, for the world to come. But what exactly is, the, is Olam Haba? It's a little amorphous right now, but it's a great question to sort of dwell with. Um, and I want to say, you are absolutely right for telling us, stay away from the sort of Christian formulation of heaven and hell. That's not what we're dealing in here. Um, so thank you for that. Jill, or Mike, one of, one of you. Yeah. Well, I, when, when we first read that, I assumed the master meant God. Mm-hmm. Later on, there's a suggestion that the master might be the Messiah. And in fact, I think that it means different things to the two men who are talking than Levi and Elijah. What do you think it means to the two of them? Well, um, I believe that Elijah is referring to God. God will decide whether there's a place for you. That's not a task that's given to the Messiah. But um, later on, when Levi comes and is with the Messiah, mm-hmm. it says, uh, my master. Right. And so it seems to me that uh, Ben Levi thinks of the Messiah as his master, if not Elijah's master. I'll even add a third confounding piece okay. to that. That Hebrew, Adon, is my Lord. It's like, sir. So it could be the master God. It could be the master Melech Mashiach, the king Messiah to come. Or it could be something else. We have a little bit of ambiguity in this piece we're about to get to. So it could, there are a lot of ways of parsing it. If you wanted to, you could even synthesize something between the God and the Mashiach piece if you wanted to read it as the Mashiach being the will of God in some ways. So you could think about the master as the grander trajectory of it too. There are a lot of ways to parse it. As I mentioned again, I would worry less about the ambiguity and take it more as an invitation to your own drosh. I like that they had two different ideas of it. I think that's a lovely drosh. Um, Jill. So, I was not happy that Master was not capitalized. (laughs) Because Messiah is capitalized there. Mm -hmm. Sort of gives greater weight to the Messiah. And and then, no. Um, how about your pen? Daniel um, said that this was a translation, so of course then I had, Thank oh you. yes, that's right, it's a translation, and in Hebrew, it was... No capital letters. In Hebrew, there are no, no capital, capital letters, letters. Right. that's right. It was men, They're all so it was, the trans, it was your rabbi yep. who decided not to capitalize master and to capitalize messiah, so I, it was just a comment. So... Mashiach, I'm comfortable capitalizing because that's a really clear role. It's a title. It's this is who this guy is. This, yeah, this master here. I'm gonna uh, for this group. I will ask Rabbi Sager why it was he didn't capitalize master because I don't know the answer to it. If I were to look at whether or not I would make the decision to capitalize it, I would make the decision not to because I would want to infer as much ambiguity as possible in that word. Whereas if I capitalized it, I would be making much more of a definitive statement about it being God or Messiah or something. Whereas I would want to leave it as ambiguous as I could. So if I were making the decision, that's what I would decide. But if this group wants, I'll go ask uh, Steve and I'll see what he has to say. It doesn't matter. Well, I'm curious now. Yeah. I'm curious now. I, and I talk to him. With, I learn with him with regularity, so I'll bring it up to him. Um, any other questions before we keep moving? Could be. just a typo? It could, that could be too. Yeah, Susan. I mean, Carol, yeah. 
the Holy Trinity. Yeah. I'll put it like this. That's not an active conversation that the rabbis would be having about this, and yet there would have been some consciousness about Christian messianism and reality. Now, Christian theology, any of y'all are welcome to disagree with me here, I would suggest that Christianity doesn't really emerge into its own as its own distinct and separate religion with its own distinct and separate um, faith tradition until the Council of Nicaea in 380-something, 360-something, um, where all of these early church fathers all get together, and they have a lot of different Christian beliefs and theological ideas and what Jesus is or is not or whatever. They actually sit down and hash it all out about this is what Christianity is going to be. And until then, I think that there is enough that's loose and amorphous um, and I think that the way we have some historical evidence of Christian early, early, early church fathers going into rabbis and, or going into what were early synagogues and debating with them and them having enough of a common language that they could have a theological debate about that whole thing that um, it's not clear. I might suggest that Christianity as its own separate, distinct faith tradition probably comes out of the Council of Nicaea, that what's happening at this point, if it's any earlier... Is amorphous. Um, there probably there's probably some awareness of some of these things, but it's probably not directly part of the conversation. So it's an interesting thing. I would suggest keep it on the back burner while you read this. Um, keep it in the back of your 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 lens while you're reading over this stuff. Yeah. And, you, know, you know, as I said when we were talking before, mm-hmm. when I looked down to the the um, Messiah washing the lepers, bandaging the lepers, first thing I went to was Jesus. A lot of these traditions borrow from one another. Um, one of the things that Daniel and I, when we were looking at this stuff and preparing, was looking at various kinds and models of, Masi- of Mashiach and Messiah, and some of these early ones really go back and forth in terms of Christianity and Judaism. Um, so you're not wrong to have that awareness with it. Um, Abe? Well, I just want to say something really quick about the concept of triumvirate, yeah. which is that it's a initially a Greek concept from like the 800s BCE, mm-hmm of mind, body, spirit, Mm -hmm. and that heavily influenced the Roman philosophy, because Roman philosophy was just stolen Greek philosophy, (laughs) and the Romans very heavily had this triumvirate in their pantheons and in their construction. There's a lot of three-sided structures in ancient Rome that reflect the triumvirate mind, body, spirit, and it's all sort of tied together, so there was definitely knowledge of this concept of triumvirate, but it wasn't part of Jewish Mm -hmm. tradition. It was just the tradition of the people who had destroyed the temple and enslaved the Hebrews and renamed the area. So this is what's cool about this, and not just because Abe is in this class, but you can't read this stuff without uncovering something you didn't know before, without uncovering some piece of this. I've taught this text a bunch of times. I've learned this text, studied it more times. and There's always something that comes out that's new. Um, The other thing I'll say about that, that triumvirate, Biblical Hebrew and the biblical imagination and consciousness don't split body and soul into and into different things. That comes about later on. And even by this time, the rabbis are beginning to um, be influenced by that Greek uh, thought in terms of this presence between neshama and goof, between bo- soul and body in this sense. Um, so these things don't happen in a vacuum. This is an important, important point. Both of you, I, I would say this in response to both of you, that this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. 
the rabbis and certain traditional rabbinic authorities would love to say that, oh, rabbinic Judaism just emerged as its own flourishing, flowering conversation. It's always been in dialogue. The truth is it's always been connected to what's going on outside of it, even if they don't necessarily want to talk about it. So it's great to keep that in mind. The next verse. Who wants to continue? How about Mike? Mike? Does he have a question? I can, I can read it. Please do. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi said to himself, I saw two, but I heard the voice of a third. All right, Mike, sorry. I'm going to save this for the end. We're going to come back to this at the, at the end. This okay. is how we're going to conclude is with this piece. Who wants to pick up? He asked the prophet, when will the Messiah come? Elijah answered, go and ask him. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi asked, where will I find him? He is sitting at the entrance of Rome, and by what signs will I identify him? He sits among those who suffer with lesions. All of them unwrap and bind up their sores at the same time. But the one who is the Messiah unties and binds up one at a time, thinking, if I am summoned, I will not have to delay. All right, questions. Go ahead, Abe. <laughs> so Rome in this, because <laughs> All right. if Rome is Rome, the city, that's quite the walk from yeah. spot. Maybe that's a long but walk. If Rome is the area that is controlled by the Roman Empire, which is often, there was a lot of literature in ancient Rome that yep. said wherever the emperor's gaze reaches is Rome, and that implied the entire empire, then does that imply that the Roman legion and and the empire was not stretching necessarily so far as these caves and these mountains to the north of of Israel of, of historic Palestine and that maybe they were just walking so far as Svad or some of the other northern coastal uh, cities at the time. Daniel, what was it that you were telling me about Rome earlier? You had an idea about what Rome could be. Yeah, there's this uh, theory based along the same idea, which is what is still run by that empire is Rome. So more likely in Jerusalem, there's different gates around the old city. Damascus Gate, Yaffa Gate, um, the Gate of Zion. There's theory that one was at one point the Rome Gate. Right, so if that's the gate in the direction of Rome, and the city is, is overseen and ruled by Rome, then it also could be a walk back to Jerusalem, which would take a couple weeks back and forth, yeah. but it's totally feasible and totally doable that they would walk back to a large city run by the Roman Empire. <coughs> and the, the idea being that what's more important here is not necessarily if they make it to Rome or not, but that they make it to an area that no longer feels like it's governed by their values. As the Romans called it at the time, Alia Capitolina. But he's talking with Elijah. <laughs> and we're sitting here wondering how many steps it is to Rome. So this takes you know, me... Right, right we're kind of mixing, you know, Elijah just the fact that he's talking with Elijah, already this is very, very fanciful. So of course he can, if he can talk to Elijah, he can walk to Rome. So let me offer a third possibility. <laughs> Rome may not need to be a physical city, place, or gate. Rome is a major presence in the rabbinic imagination. Rome is the juggernaut. Rome is the enemy. Rome represents the world coming in and crushing everything that you knew and loved and cherished, um, destroying your way of life, destroying everything that you sort of hold to as the right and true connection with God. Rome represents an awful, awful lot in the Jewish, in the uh, rabbinic imagination. And not so, heaven. Not heaven. The Rome Messiah also... Not up there. That's right. 
Uh, so Rome, and Rome also connects with various peoples and various lineages in the Bible and different biblical characters. Um, you can parse Rome a lot of different ways, many of which are not necessarily even about physical <coughs> location. So here we have three possible possibilities for Rome. Rome, the city, you know, Rome. Uh, Rome as in that part of occupied, uh, of Aelia Capitolina, of Jerusalem that faces Rome, the gate that would take you from Jerusalem to Rome, where you on a journey, and that part of Jerusalem, or it could be some other kind of place of spiritual state of awareness of Romanness that he's going and encountering. There are a lot of possibilities here. Um, other questions about this section? I thought of Mother Teresa. Interesting. When I read this, that yeah. was the first thing I thought of is is somebody just sitting. And the other thing is, when we think of the Mashiach, mm-hmm. okay, you think like of some regal, you know... Melacha Mashiach, big, the King Messiah. The King Messiah, you think of somebody very strong, very special in great robes and all that. And here, it's like sitting at the outskirts of the city with the lepers. What does Mashiach mean? Anyone know? Literally, the Hebrew word Mashiach means anointed. Mm. Traditionally, you would coronate a king with oil, like anointing them with oil. So Mashiach is the one who is anointed. Now, here's another funny little piece about Mashiach. There are multiple Mashiachim, I suppose would be the Hebrew, Messiahs in the Hebrew Bible. King Cyrus, for instance, is identified as a Mashiach. King Cyrus is the one after the first temple is destroyed and the Jews are sent into exile in Babylonia. King Cyrus of the Persians conquers the Babylonians and says to the Jews, you can return to the land and build your temple again. They go back and they build the second temple and Divrei Yamim, the book of Chronicles, identifies King Cyrus as Mashiach. Mashiach... Yes, the Greek translation of it is Christos, but it's not the Christian concept of the Messiah. What we're looking at is somebody who gets activated for a certain kind of purpose and to affect a certain kind of reality. We talked a little bit about this with this group, this Chavruta, um, about what does it mean for the Mashiach to come if the Mashiach is already there doing this stuff. Well, part of it's about the Mashiach being activated to, in some way, usher in the Messianic age. There's a rabbinic tradition that talks about the Lamed Vav, the 36 righteous people in every generation who, if the conditions were somehow to be met for the coming of the Messiah, one of them would be tapped to become the Mashiach and to arrive and to usher in the Messianic age. Um, So it seems like Mashiach is there waiting and is even aware of their status as Mashiach but hasn't been tapped, hasn't been activated just yet. Um, but there is awareness about this. Daniel, did you want to add something? Well, a few people have read said the Mother Teresa idea, the Jesus idea, but I just want to see if we're reading this the same way. The Messiah is wrapping the Messiah's wounds. Yes. Not other people's. Everyone else takes all the bandages off and bathes all their wounds at once because it's Thank you. logical. Because then you have one set of medicine, you're cleaning everything off, you rewrap it. The Messiah takes one bandage off, cleans that one sore, puts one bandage back on. Takes the next bandage off, and the reason was, if I am summoned, I will not have to delay. I can just rewrap that one and go. Thank you for the clarification. The Messiah is not doing this as the Mother Teresa thing. The Mashiach is one of the lepers. 
Um, one of these people by the gates is with them. That's right. Part of that. That's right. Part of that collective. Um, yes. Other question. Thanks, Bert. That significantly changes my reading of it because. I, I interpreted it the other way of... That he was caring for them. With, you know, being among the lepers, not him being one of the lepers. Yes. Yeah. Um, Which again, we do because of our conceptions of what Messiah does. We all have this very hardwired Christian idea that the Messiah is out serving people and serving the poor and giving and all of this stuff. We've sort of got it culturally ingrained. Messiah sort of in the rabbinic imagination is waiting to be activated right now, but isn't necessarily out there being the most pious amongst us. Not to say he's a bad guy, but it's a different conception that we're holding. But he knows, that's right, he seems to be aware of this. That he, well, and also he's not expecting, he's not expecting uh, a long, I mean, he's not expecting it to be a hundred years or a thousand years before he shows up. He's got to be ready to move. They're waiting on... So, and he doesn't decide when. I earlier that there were multiple personages. yes. So who's going to see as uh, acting in this way? We're, we're going to cover that another time. <laughs> but yes. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Let's keep going. Um, you're absolutely right, Robert, that it is... Yeah, I appreciate Rabbi it. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi went to him, <coughs> the Mashiach, yep. and said, Shalom Aleichem, my master and teacher. The Mashiach replied, Shalom Aleichem ben Levi. Rabbi Yehoshua said... When will the master come? He replied, today. And I have a question. Yes, go ahead. In the Hebrew, in the English, when will mm -hmm. is very, very certain. Mm -hmm. You're saying, you know, what, is it that certain in the Hebrew? Um, or is it when might or when could? This is when will. Yep. It's definite? Yeah, it's very okay. definite. He's very clear about when will the master, yeah. Um, and he says today. Yep. Which is? Hayom in the Hebrew. Today. Yeah, go ahead. I had a question also sort of about, about uh, titles and pronouns. So my first thought of this was that the, <coughs> the Mashiach knows Ben Levy. <laughs> when this rabbi in that something <laughs> a leper and says you know peace be on you and then the guy's like peace be on you and refers to him by name Ben Levy yeah Ben Levy so <laughs> he's, he's, he's Elijah already showing a, a substantial amount of knowledge more than is what's normally granted to a human <laughs> and then also um, I find it strange that Ben Levy would refer to the Messiah as uh, being his master and, and teacher, and then ask him, when will the master come? Which implies that he's asking a question about somebody else. He's not asking, when will you arrive? When will you come forth? But he asks the person who he identifies as the Messiah, when will the master come? When will, you know, and could this have to do with the idea of 36, that there's multiple potential messiahs in every generation? Or, or is, this, is this a vagary that's in the Hebrew as well as in the translation? So here's a curious thing. There are two messiahs in the Jewish tradition. Yeah. Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah, Messiah son of Joseph, and Mashiach ben David, David. Son of David. Yes. And the whole idea with Jesus was that he was descended from both lineages. Um, right. There's, 
So one of them is the suffering one, one of them is the conquering one that gets parsed in a couple of different ways. Um, if it's the suffering one, then that might be closer aligned to Mashiach ben Yosef, yeah, the so, Jesus figure. So maybe this is the um, suffering Messiah, and then Ben Levi is asking when the conquering Messiah is coming, <laughs> because if this was shortly after the sack of the second temple during the Roman, major Roman occupation, the, the Jews were just waiting for... So it gets complicated because there's also a rabbinic strand that thinks that, or not rabbinic, sorry, an academic strand that thinks that uh, Mashiach ben Yosef grows out of Bar Kokhva and the Bar Kokhva revolt and him being identified as this Mashiach kind of figure back in the year 132. Um, so it's complicated is what I will say about it. Um, the Shalom to you, my master and my teacher. Um, that translation, the actual Hebrew to that is Shalom Alecha Rabbi Umori, my Rav and my teacher. Okay. So he's actually translating Rabbi as teacher here, which you can translate it as. It's a fair thing to do. Um, Mori is my teacher pretty explicitly, but um, you could also read this as identifying the Mashiach as a Rav in that sense, okay. um, as a Rabbi. But it's not a dome. Not here. Not here. No. Even though the English is the same word. My master... Well, this is the problem, is that sometimes Rav gets translated as master. These things, and it takes on valences of that depending on the context. Is Rav master or is it teacher? Um, in modern Israel, yes, that's right. It winds up becoming both. Um, so it's not, there aren't clear delineations between these things in the way that there are in English. Let's keep going. Time is short. Yeah. What? So, this seems to be saying with this greeting, Ben Levi, this is how a Hebrew name works. I mean, you are your name, son of your parents. Yoshua is his name, Ben Levi, son of Levi. And so Elijah seems to be deriving from this, oh, he called you Ben Levi, therefore it applies to you and your father. But Why not? You better be really careful who you say good morning to if you're this guy. <laughs> By saying good morning, you're promising a place in the world to come. Yeah, Daniel, did you want to jump in? No, no I think that's great, but I mean, especially because Rabbi Yoshua says Shalom Alecha, not Shalom Alecha Mashiach. Yeah. Right? He doesn't address a name. Yeah. So by the Mashiach specifically giving him a name, Shalom Alecha Ben Levi, he is pointing out Shalom Alecha is more than just vague, it's a little bit more focused. But I think the only reason you can even take that is because one sentence before you hear Shalom Alecha without that name. Mm -hmm. right? So the, sometimes they try to be specific by showing you multiple options. Uh, but you're right, this does feel a lot like good morning, and then you have a lot of pressure to make sure your morning's good. <laughs> not, uh -oh. Beautiful. Other questions? Other, Grant, did you have a, point, a question from a moment ago? Okay. Um, yeah, there's a lot that gets inferred from these things. And this gets back to the way in which the rabbis, and certainly later on the Kabbalists, their, so much of their work is predicated on this idea that there are secret meanings to these things and secret meanings to individual words. And the Kabbalists take it a step further that there are secret meanings in individual letters that are there for us to find. This is how the Torah becomes such a multi-layered and multifaceted thing um, to read. And those who happen to have a black belt in this stuff... Um, it's possible to infer and to drosh and to uh, come up with some of those secret meanings and secret truths to even pretty mundane language. 
um, it's pretty remarkable to see. And this is a, an example of that sort of par excellence that, hey, um, peace be upon you, Ben Levy. Oh, that means you're good to go in the world to come. <laughs> wow. And your dad. Yes, and your father. That's right. Um, but I think it speaks to sort of some of that grand theme within it about the secret meanings thereof. Somebody want to finish it up for us? Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi said, But he lied to me, saying, Today I will come, but he has not come. Elijah replied, he was quoting a verse. This is what he said to you. Today, if you will listen to his voice. Okay. So, that comes from Psalms, and it has nothing to do with the Messiah. This is another piece about the rabbinic project. To underscore their points, to reinforce what it is they have to say, they will pluck some line of Torah or some line of Hebrew Bible, and they're happy to take it totally out of context because these are holy words. Every word in the Bible, every word in the Torah means something. So if they can find some piece, some line that proves their point, they'll... They are, they're happy to take it right out, and they're not bothered if the context is completely different. Um, the context happens to have a certain kind of uh, connection to it. It's all about the people being stiff-necked and stubborn, and God telling them, if you would only listen to me, um, things will be great. It's very much it's high Hebrew poetry, this kind of psalm material. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, well, I mean, taken literally, yes, he will come to you today if you believe in him and catch the feeling. Or mm -hmm. in the Star Wars era, if the force <laughs> becomes upon you. Yeah. yeah. That's what it says. <laughs> yeah, he comes today spiritually. If he's activated. I'm, and I'm, I'm not coming. <coughs> yeah. Coming, if you believe. So here's the thing. I'm glad you took it into the Star Wars era because let's take it into today in the last few minutes. Um, this is still a living, breathing thing. There are people waiting right now for Mashiach to come, to change and overhaul the world. There are those who would wait for a third temple. If you ever see a lot of those ultra-Orthodox Jews who are against Israel, who are anti-Zionist, the reason they are is because of this. They don't believe that we should have built a Jewish state without the Mashiach coming and ushering this in. They think we've done it all out of order, essentially, and therefore it must be false and fake and wrong. Um, In New York, they used to have beepers. People could, the Orthodox, you could buy a beeper, and so that when the Mashiach came, they would send out a, a beeper, you would on a pager. Who knows what this Hebrew word is down at the bottom? We can read a little Hebrew. Mashiach. Mashiach. Do you know who this guy is? Is that Schneerson? That's Schneerson. So there are those today. There are, have been all kinds of different moments of thinking this person or that is Mashiach. Um, the most up-to-date ones of these, this says, Yechihi will live, Adonai, our rabbi, our teacher, and um, our lord, or our master, Melech HaMashiach, King Messiah, Le'olam Va'ed, forever. Um, there are even groups who think that um, the Lubavitcher Rebbe of Chabad was actually the Messiah and did not even die. Um, there is an interesting history of all kinds of messianic figures. Shabbatai Tzvi, this sort of Turkish messianic mystical mm -hmm. figure comes to mind, who did all kinds of strange and populist things and really upended a lot of rabbinic Judaism in his own era. Um, the messianic thing is, as we see in Bar Kokhba, it can even be dangerous. Um, so let's return to that line that Mike was so curious about. I saw two, but I heard the voice of a third. 
This is perhaps the most puzzling and confounding line in there. Who wants to take a stab at what that means? Because I'm, I'm not going to give you a definitive answer as to what this line is, but I'll give you a great one that I heard. Well, Go ahead. Could it be the kid who's up to his neck in sand in the cave? I mean, could it be Shimon Bar Yochai himself? Yeah, Why not? Or, or the son. Which sure. Kind of, and yeah. the son. Could be the and two the of son. them. Yeah. And that he heard Elijah but didn't see Elijah. Okay, so maybe Shimon Bar Yochai is part of it, yeah. You know, I, I put it in, Susan, um, there's the entrance to the cave, and there's the entrance to Rome. And at the entrance to the cave, he sees Bar Yochai and his, and his son, who are trying to escape the world to be, to be in forever... Um, pious and pure, forever, yeah. Pious. But out in the world, out in Rome, we have to feed ourselves, we have to chop wood, mm -hmm. we have to keep a roof over, the head, over, our, over our head, mm -hmm. and, care of our children. And so this question, do I have a place in the world to come, is he asking, do I, can I exit this constant need to take care of myself in Rome and enter the cave? Mm. That's a beautiful reading, reading it against Shimon Bar Yochai and what I've heard characterized as the Haredi impulse, that impulse to wall oneself off from a lot of reality to a life of piety or sacredness, holiness, whatever. Where is the Mashiach here? Not in the cave where they're studying Torah. Yeah. <laughs> this is your point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. forget my yeah. question. Why is this sentence in this story? So I don't Nothing have... Nothing to do with the story. So this is the thing. There's no Who definitive answer for that. Who are the two? I oftentimes hear that there. droshed as Elijah and the Messiah. You get the perception. You see the presence. You take in that there are two. But there's some other voice there. I've heard that drashed as, okay, the third voice is actually that bifurcation of Mashiach into Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. Um, other readings of it that anyone wants to put out. So I'll toss one other one into the mix that I'd never heard before. And one of my teenagers who, we have a parallel teen Talmud group where a bunch of teenagers learn this stuff with me. And he gave me one that I had never heard before. He said that, that third voice is actually us. And it's us at the table. And that it's us needing to figure out how it is we relate to and connect to this. Like, the reform movement, the reconstructionist movement, we don't really connect and relate to this idea of this guy who's going to come and do all this stuff. But this idea of the messianic era, of an era that is somehow more perfect, more holy, more sacred than where we are, that's an interesting proposition to consider. And to consider what kinds of things we could do, um, you know, within certain kinds of, I think about the Nachman people in Israel, who say that if you say this formulation enough, na na Nachman, Nachman Ma'uman, if you say the name of this guy, Nachman from Uman, enough, you're actually accelerating Mashiach coming. There are those who say every Jew wearing tefillin accelerates the Mashiach coming. And so that's why you have those guys out on the street corners trying to wrap tefillin on everybody who's Jewish. Um, if, yeah, if you're male, exactly. Let's not kid ourselves about their uh, gender politics. Just yes. There's a cool initiative in New York that does the same thing for uh, the reform movement does it for every person that goes by. And they're very, very deliberate about making sure that men and women can rap for that same reason. Yeah. But yes, it's very much to accelerate the Mashiach. But let's not lose sight of those gender politics. I appreciate no, I'm glad I appreciate that, uh, that piece as well. But if we took that seriously, that there might be something we could do in our world to accelerate a messianic era, to bring about an era that is more holy, more sacred, more um, closely reflects our ideals of a time where we are connected truly to God, to holiness, that becomes a very interesting imperative. 
becomes a very interesting calling. And that was what my high, this high school, or this is what Nathan Goldenberg um, had to say about it. He said, oh, that's who the voice is, that um, Yoshua ben Levi is listening to Elijah, who telescopes through the generations. He's listening to Mashiach, another thing that telescopes through the generation. And then Yoshua ben Levi is listening to us, having this conversation here today, thinking about what it would mean to act in service of a world that is more holy. The Messianic era is a complicated thing. There's a great platform. I, thinking, I brought it in here to read. I'm not gonna because it's not the direction we've gone in about um, in the 1800s, the reform movement wrestling with what is this idea of Messiah and Messianism. Um, and I also want to offer some caution too. We've seen that Messianism and that kind of political uh, initiative can go horribly, horribly wrong. We saw the abject slaughter and the violence of the Bar Kokhba era, an era in which somebody came and Rabbi Akiva said, this is not, his name was Ben Kosiba. And instead, uh, Rabbi Akiva renamed him Bar Kokhba, the son of a star, to explain, to put forward who this is. The other, there were other rabbis at the time and said, grass is going to grow from your body six feet under before Melech HaMashiach comes. They got what was going on there. They got that Rabbi Akiva was advancing a certain kind of messianic militarism. This is Messiah in favor, uh, in service of, in being deployed to um, insurrection, violence. Is, is there a, a relation between the word Mashiach and Mashiach? <laughs> <laughs> Not that I know of. Um, the Nun and the Gimel in there, I don't think, uh, take us to Mashiach. But um, It's funny, but it also, it's not a bad question to ask because when you get to the edges of this, there are those that can fall into things that look a little bit crazy. Um, if you look back at the Shabbatai Tzvi movement, um, that gets a little violent and it also gets crazy in ways that are undeniable. So to parse what is Mashiach and what is our, what's our place relative to it? How are we in dialogue with that as an idea or an ideal or a value? Um, I think that's a really important question, even while we grapple with the dangers of some of that political or uh, martial reality of deploying Mashiach in favor of one political cause or one effort or one violent move or another. Um, Mashiach is an incredibly complex, incredibly powerful, and can be a dangerous thing. But I'll put it like this. If I'm going to read this story the way that Nathan Goldenberg did, uh, I think that we are in some ways called to this conversation about uh, even if we're not trying to anoint someone as Mashiach, what does it mean to have our efforts and our lives and our work uh, be advancing a messianic age? Uh, what would it mean for our efforts in taking care of people who are in need in our own community, serving those who are uh, in need, taking care of people? Uh, what would it mean for all of that if we looked at it a, a little bit like some of the Orthodox and said, okay, we're actually trying to tilt the needle on this whole world? Um, it's an interesting question to hold. What would that look like? And what even do we think Messianism, uh, the Messianic era means, even if we don't hold this figure of a Mashiach coming? Um, I'm not going to answer any of these questions right here, but I do want to end with uh, this invitation that we have from Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, that you know, perhaps in our conversation, perhaps Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi is listening in out 
telescoping through the generations and is part of this conversation with us today, just like Elijah, just like Eliyahu Hanavi, and just like Mashiach, that all of these things are here on the table with us. And we get to sit in the Beit Midrash with all of them 2,000 years ago. It's sort of the beauty of getting to take part in the rabbinic project. So let this simply be a bookmark in the conversation. And with that, I will say, have a great evening.